poised for a wave of food fraud. Are you familiar with food fraud? The column is penned by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University, and he joins us now. Sylvain, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Can you explain in sort of a Coles Notes, uh, layman's terms, what food fraud is? Absolutely. Uh, Well, in simple terms, uh, the label is wrong, uh, or our product, a food product, is mislabeled. But there are three main reasons why a label would be wrong. One, uh, you're dealing with counterfeiting. Theft, uh, a product that was diverted uh, out of the food chain. Uh, there's actually lots of theft going on. Uh, food is repurposed uh, one way or another without uh, proper oversight. So these things do happen, especially uh, with uh, with global food chains. Secondly, uh, adulteration, economically motivated adulteration. So replacing an ingredient with another one, which is cheaper. So let's say, for example, you uh, buy a bottle of olive oil. Well, you may actually put canola oil in it uh, in addition to olive oil. Uh, And the canola oil, of Mm. course, is cheaper. It it has happened in Canada before. And lastly, misrepresentation. Uh, You may think you're ordering or, uh, or buying an organic product, when in actuality it is not. Or you may think that you're buying a product that was grown and produced locally, but it was imported. So those are uh, those are examples of, of what food fraud it looks like. How gullible are we to food fraud? Gullible? <laughs> yeah, like as a, as a consumer, because we had like, I remember the, the fish controversy, I think it was a couple of years ago when we started looking for the ocean-wise stamp because there was some credibility attached to that because we were starting to see fish. It's, everything was bassa all of a sudden, or there were, you know, shrimp priced at... Three ninety nine a pound when shrimp before was twenty four ninety nine a pound. Like, are we like, oh, that's a deal? I'm going to buy that. Are we gullible in in sort of not? I, I don't know if gullible is the right word. I've I feel like I have been gullible in sort of going with the savings and thinking that oh, they must have just over ordered or there must be some other reason behind yeah. this rather than I'm buying not what I expected to buy. We've we've all been victim of food fraud. I mean, every time victim. I give a talk about food fraud, I always ask, well, how many people here think you've been a victim of food fraud? And you'll see probably ten percent of people raising their hands, maybe twenty. The act, the actual number is a hundred percent. I've been had by food fraud, uh, and it's, it's a massive problem. It's a global problem, and um, and of course, if you if you refer to the term gullible as a an intent to price shop and try to get the best deal possible. Well, if you're actually walking into a restaurant and they give you all you, they offer you all you can eat sushi for $10, ask yourself a question, what mm-hmm. are you eating? And so, yes, absolutely. You, if you, if it's too cheap, you, you may have to ask yourself why. But the, the, the reality with uh, economic downturns is that uh, we do typically see an increased number of food fraud cases around the world. And COVID is probably not going to be an exception. We are starting to see a, an increased number of uh, food fraud cases 
uh, in Europe and Asia uh, for two reasons. One, the marketplace is, uh, is depressed financially, so companies will want to remain competitive, so they'll cut corners as much as they can. And secondly, uh, supply chains have been, un, un, has been un, un, under a lot of stress. So there are some ingredients that are a little bit more difficult to get than others. And so the temptation to actually use something else much cheaper is absolutely real. Now, the vast majority of, com- of companies are quite responsible. But there's always a handful of, of, of companies that will uh, impact the reputation of the entire sector. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, and we're talking about small business in Canada and how many, if not most, are struggling to survive the COVID-19 pandemic. The challenges go far beyond the virus and worker safety with zero opportunity really to turn a profit, yet still be saddled with all the overhead expenses. This math has been stacked against survival of small businesses. And as much as the federal government is trying to attempt to find ways to help, it seems that the struggle remains very, very real. And I wanted to talk this through. What is that, What exactly is hurting in the name of help, like the CERB and, and what might be falling flat? Rent relief uh, for small businesses. We bring in Muriel Protzer, who's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business Policy Analyst for BC, to the show. Muriel, thank you for doing this. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much for having CFIB on today. Oh, glad to talk with you. And there's there's a lot to unpack here because when we say small business, it's a general term for a very broad topic, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. When we talk about small businesses, uh, what we really represent in our membership, we're talking about maybe 10 employees. That's the majority of our membership here. So these are these are really small businesses or mom, mom and pop shops you see when walking down some of our main streets. Muriel, what did the stats say in terms of how many of those mom-and-pop small businesses might survive this pandemic? Well, from our survey data, you know, we've been issuing surveys to our members who are small businesses throughout this pandemic, trying to track exactly what's happening on the ground. And what we're finding is that some good news, the majority of small businesses are open, in fact. Uh, that being said, uh, half of them only partially open. So, of course, as we're during, uh, going through this transitionary phase, um, lots of uh, restrictions still in place by the provincial health uh, office. Uh, a lot of businesses unable to return to full operation. It's not business as usual. Um, that being said, still positive to see the majority of them open. What we think is really concerning here, though, which speaks to the financial hardship that small businesses have had to endure, is you know we ask our members, what are your greatest worries during this pandemic? And one of our answers was, was really shocking. We found that 20% of BC businesses are worried they may have to close their doors permanently. So that really speaks to the nature of how difficult this has been on our small businesses. Wow, 20%. Holy, that's a, a huge number when we put that into the overall perspective. So what as, um, as patrons or as citizens can we do in support of our small businesses, can we, should we be going in and, and finding that you know clothing store that maybe we don't need anything from right now and buying that gift card that could be used months down the road that could keep things going? Or is the problem, is the issue greater than that? Do we need to actually have the federal government uh, in conjunction with the provincial government push a little harder to get that rent relief or, or talk about the highest and best use property taxes that are often handed off to the mom and pop who 
has the lease? Um, what what do we need to do, and what are some of the things that can be put into place to protect our small businesses in BC? Yeah, well, everyone has a role to play here. You know, when we're talking about these small businesses, this is the majority of jobs we have in British Columbia. We need to make sure that those jobs are protected so we do have a normality to return to once we are over, you know, the worst of what we're living through at the moment. Um, In terms of what consumers can do, absolutely. Gift card, that's a great idea to support your local business. Um, You know, I I like to, I live on uh, Canby Street and I like to frequent the little shops along here. And, you know, I had my eye on this, this one. One uh, specific, it was a, a ceramic cup made. I had my eye on it for over over half a year now, and I said, you know, now's the time. Now's the time I'm going to buy that. So those purchases right. that are at the back of your mind, uh, those unique products that you can a- often find at your local businesses, now's the time to remind yourself, oh, maybe maybe now's a good time to visit that business and show my support for them and show your support for the local community because when you, when you spend your dollar at that local business, that's getting reinvested into local jobs. These are people. These are family. These are actual humans behind these jobs and, and this uh, community that small business makes up. Now, in terms of what the government can do, there's still a lot. Um, we have seen a lot of great initiatives, the rent relief program, which, you've, which you mentioned there. Um, while it has the best intentions, the, simply what we're seeing on the ground is not enough businesses are getting the support they so desperately need from this program. Can you explain that a little bit? Why wouldn't they? Like when I think about it, and maybe it's just I'm naive or I'm Pollyanna about it, like wouldn't the landlord want to offer up the federally subsidized rent relief to keep the tenant in place because booting out the tenant that can't make rent, there's not like a lineup ready to take over that space, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, now is extremely difficult times and for tenants to lose or landlords to lose their tenants. I mean, I can't imagine someone would be in a line to take that place. But that being said, the application process for for this relief is not simple. There are seven Mm. forms you have to complete to apply, and that's not including even the registration process. And as a landlord, you also have to make the commitment to reduce rent yourself and forgive 25% of that payment. Uh, So what does this actually mean? Who's actually applying? Who's going to get relief? From our numbers uh, and our survey data that we've collected, we find that some good news, 40% of BC businesses who are eligible for the program have indeed come to an agreement with their landlord and have applied for the program and will hopefully see that relief coming in. Um, But that being said, there's still a third who are eligible and have landlords who are not uh, participating in the program and they don't have an alternate agreement in place. And obviously this isn't great news. Um, So we have, you know, a couple couple solutions here. Is it do we address the landlord situation and try to get them to apply or do perhaps we look at what the policy is and how it's formed and see if there's another way to get that relief to businesses. And so what CFIB is proposing is the latter one here. There must be a way we can get this relief directly to small businesses instead. So what CFIB is proposing is to allow tenants to access their share of the rent relief support. So that's the 50% rent relief portion directly through the program. So essentially, bypassing their landlord. So essentially that would give them the rent relief directly to them. Uh, It's not 75%, but it would still be a reduction in their rent by half, which would be very welcomed by the small business community. What a fantastic idea. An immediate 50% reduction in rent direct to the mom and pop small business. That how do we get that on the table in front of the politicians who have to make these decisions uh, and put them into practice? 
Yeah, well, CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, we are an advocacy group. We do have communication with government at all levels. We've got municipal, provincial, federal here. And uh, we raise these, these uh, con- the concerns we have, the solutions we have, all to them. So we're keeping our communication channels open. Uh, this is a solution we have raised with them. And, you know, they have been very receptive in the past to make adjustments to some of the other federal support programs. Um, so we're, we're hoping and we're, we're moving forward with this. We're keeping it on the table and reminding them at every opportunity we can that, hey, this is a real solution that we could put in place. And absolutely the support, this additional support is so needed to repeat myself. There are a third of business owners who are eligible for the rent relief program simply won't get it. So how does the regular Joe public like myself support the CFIB in, in getting the noise around this? I mean, we saw the, the, the CERB evolve because of the reaction from uh, citizens, from taxpayers, and, and, and a concerted effort with advocacy groups as, as you are. Is there a way that, that everybody can help that one third of small businesses who really need that urgently? Yeah, well, it comes back to it's all our responsibility to support our local businesses. And revenues are significantly down for business right now. Mm. I mean, we talked about how half of BC businesses are only partially open at this point. Um, But if you are able to, to get out there and support local businesses, um, again, from our survey data, we've seen that about half of BC business owners are seeing a 50% or more reduction in revenue. So that's Half your revenues or more you're just not making right now. It's a really difficult time. So I encourage everybody to get out there and support local when you can. Um, Lots of opportunity to do so. I've seen even restaurants expanding their patios to on the sidewalks and such. You're outside. It can be a really great time and a really great way to support small business. Um, Another way to, to help small businesses and advocacy groups here is if you're talking with a small business owner or you know someone, a family, a friend who is a small business owner, if they have questions about any program, any relief they might need, any help, CFIB has opened our lines to all small business owners across Canada. If they've got a question, you can give us a call. You can check us out at cfib.ca slash COVID-19 and we'll make sure that we can help you. That is amazing. I love that. Okay, we're going to reiterate that. You can stay for one more segment, Muriel. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent, because I want to talk specifically about the CERB and how that's impacting small business with regard to staffs. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, and uh, we're continuing our chat with Muriel Protzer about small business and the survival of small business in British Columbia. Muriel is the BC analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business Policy. Muriel, thanks for sticking around here. I do want to talk about the CERB. It has helped so many Canadians who were facing dire straits when we were all sent home and told to self-isolate and quarantine and lock down. But now as we reopen, what do your numbers say? What does your survey say when it comes to uh, small businesses trying to hire back their employees while the CERB has now, just as of today, been extended for another three months? Yeah, you know, we are still very much in a transitionary period. Um, the CERB, you know, it was initially set to expire in just a couple of weeks, beginning of July. So seeing it expanded is actually something that the small business community uh, does support in theory. Um, from the business perspective here, it, it is really too early to get rid of CERB completely at this point. Uh, we're still operating under restricted provincial health orders. And earlier we were talking about how many businesses 
businesses are open. And we still find that half are only at partial capacity. So that means we actually don't have those jobs still for people to return to. You know, for a restaurant example, they have to make sure that they have physical distancing measures in place between their tables. And so that, of course, means not as many tables as uh, as business would be as usual. So before we, we really see these restrictions lifted and business can start returning back to usual and we do see businesses operating at full capacity, uh, we do need to make sure there's protections for employees who don't have a job to return to yet. Yeah, I don't think anybody's suggesting that the CERB be done away with. It's it's continuing on until October. That was the announcement that the Prime Minister uh, made today. But more and more, we're hearing the rumblings of, of I'm trying to hire back my employees, but they aren't making $2,000 a month uh, working in my establishment, nor, nor did they prior to perhaps as a, as a part-time employee, can't even get the staff to come back because they get paid sometimes exponentially more just to stay home. I'm just wondering if there is impact on small business in that regard. Maybe if there's a shift in how it is um, disseminated, I don't know what the right word is, handed out, uh, given to uh, citizens. Uh, it, it has been such a blanket, I guess, from the very beginning. Or as you're saying, am, am I jumping the gun here and it's just a little bit too soon to make that transition? Yeah, you you raise a really good point. For a lot of part-time positions, um, for the employee's perspective, it may make sense to stay on CERB versus going back to the workplace. So this is where we really need to look at the policy and examine, okay, what can be changed to make sure we're giving that incentive for employees to return to work when there is a job available. Um, For this specific situation, what CFIB is suggesting is that we need to add some additional requirements into CERB to make sure that we're making sure these these individuals, uh, these users of the program are still in the labor force. They are available and looking for work. They haven't exited the labor force entirely. So just like under the employment insurance system, um, CFIB is suggesting CERB users should meet that criteria criteria that shows they are available and looking for work. Um, in addition to uh, further incentivize that employee going back to work, under the current structure, employees are allowed to earn up to $1,000 um, in their claim period, that four-week period, while still collecting that benefit. Um, to better help transition employees back into those jobs, we really need to increase that $1,000 limit because that's really low. Yeah, that is the piece that I was looking for. You've echoed my sentiments and you articulated so much better than I, which is probably why you <laughs> hold the position you do as the analyst for BC for the CFIB. It's about the incentive to go back to work, the incentive to return to the job. And if we lift that benchmark of $1,000 allowable earnings in four weeks and still have the CERB there, then perhaps we can give the opportunity for people to stimulate the economy a bit more, even as we slowly reopen. Muriel, thank you very much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having CFIB on. Always a pleasure to be here. Can you reiterate how people can reach out and get in touch? Absolutely. So CFIB, we have opened our lines to all business owners across Canada. If you have a question or concern COVID-19 related, you should get in contact with us. You can find out more online at cfib.ca slash COVID-19. We've got our number there. You can call us at or submit a question online. We've got an FAQ even. Uh, We'll make sure that we get a answer to your question. Excellent. And if you're a small business owner or employee that just tuned in, I'll make sure I put this up on Twitter. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Thanks for being with us. And during the time of COVID-19, restaurants have, well, to say struggled is the understatement of understatements. And and there have been some significant policy changes already made to support the hospitality sector during this pandemic. Like the liquor and cannabis regulation branch has already authorized liquor primary and food primary establishments to sell packaged liquor for offsite consumption with the order of a meal. Uh, authorized BC liquor manufacturers to make hand sanitizer and and produce and make and uh, distribute hand sanitizer. They've extended the allowable hours of operation for retail liquor stores to allow earlier opening, maybe consi- coinciding with early grocery store hours. Uh, one day we'll get to in the actual grocery store, perhaps. And also introduced expedited approval for expansion of service areas like patios uh, of licensed establishments. We saw that last week. And last week we were talking with Ian Tostenson, who is the BC Restaurant Food Association CEO and president. And there is a wee bit of great news to share today on the tourism restaurant front. And we're going to let Ian Tostenson share that news with you because he is joining us here now, being the bearer of good news. Hi, Ian. Hi, <laughs> Jody. Um, so, so, drum roll. This is really cool. Uh, and this has been an issue that's been worked on for literally years. And the Attorney General now was the opposition critic when the Liberals were in part. And he came to a meeting we had one day. And I remember saying uh, out loud to this group of 300 people, because it was liquor reform, that one day we are going to have, drum roll, wholesale pricing for restaurants. And uh, Minister Eby now said to me, that has to happen. And he made it happen. And I take my entire hat off to him because he was the one that sponsored this. And so what it means is that restaurants, as we've talked in the past, Jody, that bought liquor at retail prices, same price as you and I, can now buy it at approximately about a 25, about a 20 to 25 percent savings to what they're buying right now. So that's going to have a significant impact on their cash flow uh, as they reemerge and uh, with all these things, opportunities around them. Uh, I've never seen such a response by industry uh, today. People are just going, this is going to save my business, and this is historic, and it probably is the biggest change in liquor in our generation. It's amazing. It is amazing. And it was really shocking to many who are outside of the restaurant industry to learn initially that restaurants had to buy full retail, uh, buy liquor at full retail prices, and then try and turn a profit on that. Because so many will say, oh, well, they make all their money on their booze. And it's like, well, actually, no. And uh, yeah. it's it's a big cost. So this announcement made by uh, Attorney General David Eby he said, quote, the hospitality industry has been one of the hardest hit during the pandemic, badly hurting the more than 190,000 British Columbians who work within the sector. Offering a host- wholesale discount for licensees was something we were exploring before COVID-19. But after the onset of the pandemic, we accelerated efforts in order to support these uh, community businesses as they try to find their feet. So here's the here's the multi-million dollar question for you, Ian. Why then does Attorney General David Eby make this temporary? I think the word is prudence because a lot of people are affected by this. So Mm -hmm. when BC wineries ship direct and when uh, microbreweries ship direct, all this has an implication on them. And as much as the the BTAP group for, you know, the Business Technical Advisory Panel, which we were on that did this, um, we anticipated as many of these changes as possible. But we, until they're actually implemented, you don't know. So we right. don't want to, as an industry, make sure we, we don't want to crash the coffers of the LDB 
and we don't want to hurt the wine industry. And I don't think we will, but I think they're saying is, well, what they told us this morning, frankly, at the call, was we want to be prudent, we want to make sure it's the right move, and we just simply want to take at some point a breather and review it. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. I think it's just being very cautious, and I can't see that this on in March of 2021 would be, okay, everyone, thanks very much. We've enjoyed that. We're going back to full prices. I just can't see that. It may go back to a slightly uh, reduced um, um, discount. That's fine, too. But in right. the meantime, they put the maximum wholesale price they could to allow industry some, you know, to get some breathing room and some cash in their coffers. Now, Emad, our good friend at Global Restaurants, said this is going to allow him to probably hire back 50 employees right away because wow. of the increase in margins. So we're not going to see uh, we're not going to see restaurants going, hey, it's liquor sales time. We put the prices down. I hope they keep their prices where they are. They keep this margin to put it into their operations to hire people to, you know, to get, you know, just to keep, to continually invest in their businesses to get to a new normal. So 25%, that is, yeah, that is a significant number. Yeah. Could you, could you have ever imagined 20 to 25%? No, no, we no. actually, me- I remember sitting with the minister once with the group and saying, minister, if we even got like 5%, even like mm-hmm. 10%, but, you know, he, he took this to a different level because he, that's fine. We could do that, and that would help. But this is really going to help. This is kind of like the shot in the arm. This is like, you know, the electrodes that are going to get the body back moving again to see if they can stimulate something here. And with, with that change and the fact, as you mentioned, Jody, about being able to order liquor with your food delivery and all these changes they've made, because there's so much tax on liquor, it's a little bit easier on, on when you're talking about liquor. There's so much money involved. They can actually make these changes, and they will make a difference. I mean, I, I just, like I said, operators have, have been emailing this morning saying, wow, this is amazing, and never thought in our lifetime this would happen. We're with Ian Tostenson, the uh, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association, and we're talking about how the province has decided to expand measures to support restaurants and tourism industries by reducing or giving wholesale pricing where liquor is concerned. And can you give just like the, the shortest possible synopsis as to wh- how we got into a position where where restaurants uh, and, and, and bars were paying full pull for, for liquor in the first place? It goes way back to historically where no one should get a break in, on, on liquor. Uh, historically, there were never price discounts on liquor. I mean, I think there was self, there was service liquor stores. You had to go to the counter and ask the person to get it. So there was this conservative thinking that any discount, prohibition type thinking. And so um, it's just the way it was. And it's the way it was in Canada. And I think, I think there's maybe one province that provides a little bit of a benefit, but this is ground shaking for the rest of Canada as well, uh, for our industry. Now in the States, it's wholesale pricing. That's just the way it is. But mm-hmm. for here, it's just been this historical conservative prohibition attitude. And um, it started to change back in Expo 86 when we could actually open up uh, bars on a Sunday. Remember that? I, re- I do. I remember because I grew up in Tawasin and I remember my folks going down uh, into Point Roberts to go yeah. to the reef to have a beer on a Sunday. It was like a thing to do. That's right. The Reef, catch a concert, drink some beer. That's right. You could not do it in British Columbia. So these are all parts of the slow modernization that make complete sense. And it will serve the taxpayer well because this is going to help employment, help small business stay open, 
all those different things. And so it's not like some big benefit being conferred to the industry. It's a much needed economic stimulus that, that we hope long term will stay. And it's giving citizens of British Columbia the opportunity to prove that we are mature enough to have this opening up. Uh, to, to to move away from that prohibitive stance. So uh, it's it's fascinating, big news, and I'm very glad that we were able to have you on, Ian, to explain it to us. And what a what great news! Keep us uh, informed of the of the great uh, influx of uh, emails and and voicemails that you're getting. You're getting finally positivity uh, within the industry. We love it. Thanks, Jody. We got to get a great patio soon when it gets sunny. Yeah, no, I'm down. Let's do that. Okay. Maybe we go to right. maybe we go to our next guest's patio because Chef David Hawksworth is going to join us right after a quick break here to give us okay. his views on the yeah. on the expanded measures and and maybe what else can be done. Thank you very much, Ian Tostenson. Much appreciated as always. <laughs> Bye. He- Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Uh, glad to have you along here as we continue to unpack what is bi- very, very big news for the restaurant and tourism industries as the government, the B.C. provincial government, has uh, approved a temporary wholesale pricing model that will allow liquor licensees to purchase beer, wine and spirits at reduced cost. It'll come in at the into place at the end of July and will go until March 31st of 2021 when the program will be reviewed. But as we heard from Ian Tostenson, uh, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association uh, prior to the break, likely to continue. Just needs to be reassessed to make sure everything is working and there's no damage being done, uh, sort of collateral damage that, that nobody had intended or seen prior to. When I saw this story move, I immediately thought of our next guest, uh, world-renowned chef uh, David Hawksworth, joining us on the line. Uh, thank you for being with us, chef. Much appreciated. Uh, good afternoon, Jody. Uh, thanks for having I thought, me. I thought of you right away because you've been quite <laughs> vocal on your social media about the need for wholesale pricing, and here it is. Yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Oh my God, it's 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 amazing. Um, I mean, it's. It's uh, it's the absolutely the right move. Um, you know the you know you think when you know if you go to Italy and you go over there and there's a bottle that's twelve dollars in Italy and then by the time you know uh, you walk into the, the liquor store here and I was paying you know I could, I'll be buying you know millions of dollars worth of alcohol or mm-hmm. I used to be I used to do that okay. um, and uh, and then um, you know that and then Jody walks in there and we pay exactly the same price. It's ludicrous. Um, and, and how much you know, would that $12 bottle in Italy be in BC once it makes it all the way through all the red tape and processes involved? You know, $50, $60, $70. It, I mean, it, there's, you know, there's, there isn't really a meter. They, they kind of just come up with a price and go, okay, that's what we're going to charge. And so, you know, um, and so that whole spread, uh, the, the hospitality is missing out on. And so, yeah, but, you know, there should be some, reduce pricing to a degree but also like you know restaurants have been you know if you know if if a a restaurateur came to me and said hey we make two percent profit a year you know i'd be like good for you right like you know Mm -hmm. and and it shouldn't be two percent you know we we should be you know trying to scrape out you know 15 17 18 19 20 percent or something like that after you know all of the you know, it, just to keep into in business, put some money away for a rainy day fund and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, so I am very concerned with the language of saying temporary, and also um, when they talk about the wholesale, like it, it, it really just needs to be a wholesale price, not ten percent off or twenty percent off. 
It's got to be wholesale. It's like just make wholesale wholesale what it actually is to be wholesale. Because yeah. we all we all know that there's the good guy deal. There's the friends yeah. and family deal. There's the I've known you for a long enough time or you're a friend of a friend of a friend. But then there's wholesale. That's the price that people buy it at to resell it and make a business around it. And and that's what you're looking for when it comes to to, to liquor. Because you can you can buy uh, other things at a wholesale price that is a set wholesale price, right? Yeah, I mean, it's based on volume when we, we buy our our fish and our vegetables and uh, and our meat and all that kind of stuff, we, we get better pricing because we do huge volume, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, but the concerning part about it is, is that, okay, you know, okay, great. We're going to move into wholesale pricing for the industry. It's fantastic. But that's a huge chunk of money that, uh, you know, that the, the, the hospitality industry has been raising for the government how is that going to get replaced? Like what's going to get cut? How are they going to make this all up? Mm-hmm. Is, is, uh, is, I'd like to know that. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, it becomes clearer and, uh, you know, maybe you can have uh, Mr. Eby on or, Mr. or the premier. And, I would like uh, to have David Eby on to talk about this, actually. And it's a good news story for him, as Ian was talking about, the fact that he, is, he has been um, looking to speed up this process. Yeah, that he, he said. Yeah, the- I, I, well, we've I've, I've met with him, you know, over the last kind of like six months, uh, sent uh, a few emails. Of, I'm sure I'm quite annoying, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's, you know, we are so desperate for something like this because we just want to survive because, you know, uh, right now uh, it looks uh, apocalyptic out there for uh, anybody in the in this industry. People should be following you on social media, as I said. Like, that's what sort of peaked it for me. You and I have known each other for quite some time. Um, you know, I've come to your restaurants. I've and enjoyed your fine dining. Yes, yes. And yep. uh, But following you along on Twitter, like, you are, you are very uncensored and, and, and forthright chef yeah. uh, putting forward what you what you need trouble too it's <laughs> well welcome to my world because i i'm doing the exact same thing but the world needs more people who are ready to say the tough truths here so uh, with this wholesaling uh even if it is temporary and as you said like mm-hmm. what where's the other shoe going to drop because somebody is going to need to fill up the spot in the coffers will it will it hit you in a different way what is what needs to happen in order to give some stability to the restaurant industry uh, with regard to rent relief or the highest and best use uh, property taxes or the how is the CERB impacting rehiring of employees? Like, how are you seeing all of that play out? Is there one more thing yeah. you'd like to add to this on your soapbox? Well, the, the, the CERB thing is that's interesting. I mean, there are uh, I mean, we have a really dedicated crew of, of, of uh, people that, you know, want to work and want to sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, they're dying to serve, dying to cook. And so they've been, um, they're elated to come back. And, you know, even if it's for 10 covers at lunchtime, they're just, they want to be here. Um, but, uh, you know, I have heard from other uh, people out there that, you know, they're like, um, you know, I can get my two grand and, I can chill out now. There's no real pressure to sort of come back to work. There, there is an element of that out there. Um, so maybe if we get the criteria raised from that one thousand dollars over a four week period and allow people to make a bit more as well as collect the CERB, we can stimulate the entire economy with this instead of just having people get paid 
to stay home. I certainly want to come and hit a patio with uh, with your culinary uh, on the plate. So I really do appreciate you doing this. It's not lost on me that it's one twenty five in the afternoon, which is <laughs> lunch rush. So thank you very much, Chef, for doing Thanks, this. Jody, and uh, and uh, good luck to everybody out in the, uh, in the industry. And, and one last thing, if, uh, you know, support local. So, you know, small, uh, independent, uh, uh, little restaurants out there, go out there, and do what you can to help them because uh, we are super desperate out there. So let's um, keep. If you're if you're uncomfortable with dine out, then take out and tip big. <laughs> if you're going to dine out, turn that table. Under the executive order I'm signing today, we will prioritize federal grants from the Department of Justice to police departments that seek independent credentialing, certifying that they meet high standards, and in fact, in certain cases, the highest standard. That's where they do the best, on the use of force and de-escalation training. For example, many believe that proper training might have prevented the tragic deaths of Antoine Rose and Botham Jean. As part of this new credentialing process, chokeholds will be banned, except if an officer's life is at risk. And I will say we've dealt with all of the various departments, and everybody said, It's time. We have to do it. That is U.S. President Donald Trump today. So let's dive into the latest happenings in the U.S. We'll start there. To do that, we are checking in with Cicchini, Reggie Cicchini, our producer reporter in the U.S. Capitol for Global News. Reggie, as always, thank you for taking a few minutes for us. Anytime. So Donald Trump, you heard it right there. He has signed an executive order. What does that order actually mean? Is it is it going to ban chokeholds? Well, I mean, it is saying that chokeholds are not going to be allowed unless an officer feels that their life is in need. And then the questions will be asked, uh, asked rather to see, you know, who's going to determine whether or not the officer's life was actually uh, uh, facing some in kind danger. of a threat. Yeah. So realistically here, yes, th- this executive order does have some ground to it. The issue is, is that Congress is also working on their own individual pieces of legislation in the House and the Senate. So it's unclear what's actually going to happen. And at the end of this, realistically, this is the very first few steps that protest, uh, protesters have been calling for. It is worth noting that the words used in this executive order don't do anything to deal with systemic racism uh, and racial profiling in law enforcement. The president choosing his words very carefully, understanding that he cannot go against the police unions because he needs them politically for his political future later on this year. Definitely stood out to me that he did not mention George Floyd. Well, he didn't mention George Floyd. He didn't mention the recent incident in Atlanta. He didn't have any of the families that he was meeting with prior to that uh, that had uh, that were families of police brutality. Uh, none of them were present with him in the Rose Garden. Uh, I mean, he was with a whole bunch of law enforcement officials. None of them were wearing masks. That's a different story. But there were a lot of issues with uh, with the way that the president presented this executive order. Again, uh, the conversation being the fact that the president appears blind to the current situation. It was quite a press availability, I guess, for the president. He went on a couple of rather rambling tangents. Uh, One real uh, standout was certainly when he started talking about an AIDS vaccine. 
Well, this was this is the president when he starts to go off script. You can see that he's no longer reading the teleprompter in front of him, and he was he he parlayed into uh, the great things that are happening around the world, notably when it comes to the COVID pandemic, and then talked about how doctors have been actively uh, you know working to deal with the AIDS crisis, and then talked about there being an AIDS vaccine, and then caught himself and said and and other therapeutics for AIDS. Uh, this is just simply what happens when the president uh, is not paying attention to the actual situation that he's supposed to be talking about and goes off one of his riffs you know it becomes the talking point which then takes the attention away from what he was actually supposed to be doing yeah it gets to be a lot of sparkly things so go back to COVID-19 in the United States where are we as of today as of June 16th we are looking at uh, quickly approaching 120,000 deaths in this country, uh, coronavirus cases topping or approaching 2.2 million. Uh, the IHME, which had just updated their models to say that there would be 200,000 deaths by the end of October, have now uh, slightly increased that again to about 202,000 deaths. The numbers just keep going up here. What's important to look at are state-by-state -state numbers and Florida uh, just reported uh, its highest count. There were 3,000 cases reported in a 24-hour period in Florida. Arizona had 2,300. You're now looking at 5,000 cases in two states that are very quickly approaching numbers that New York had at the very beginning of its outbreak. And we have to question whether or not the numbers being reported in Florida are even at all accurate, right? But there's been a lot of buzz about that. There has been, and there was uh, there was a data, a data input clerk who was actually taken out of their job because uh, she was putting numbers out that weren't being approved by the state, but she's now running her own site to try and get the actual numbers put out there. And we've heard from the very beginning uh, that the numbers were simply uh, being underreported because of the way the testing was being carried out, the way that people were being treated in hospitals, in the way that, uh, you know, if you if you died and there was no test carried out on you, that number may not have been counted. So there is a fear that these numbers are much higher. We heard Dr. Fauci say uh, just a couple of weeks ago that this current outbreak right now is his nightmare. What's incredibly, you know, mind-blowing to, to think about right now is Dr. Fauci was on the local Washington, D.C. NPR station today, and he said that he hasn't heard from the president in two weeks. And this is the man who was leading the president's coronavirus task force. What? I don't even know what to say to that. He has Dr. Fauci, it, who's leading the task force, has not heard from the president in, well, what we call in British Columbia, one incubation period. Well, and I mean, this this goes back to what I said earlier, the president holding that news conference today in the Rose Garden. They pushed all the reporters chairs together. So they were sitting on top of each other and there were 20 people standing behind the president. Nobody was wearing a mask and nobody was social distancing. It's because this president has quickly now moved beyond the economy uh, and back into the political sphere uh, of what's important to him. And the, the coronavirus is a month old story now that he is simply no longer paying attention to. Okay, can we talk about this rally? Rally? Because that, that seems like where this is going. We got to forget about the coronavirus. We got to push everybody together because I'm going to jam 20,000 people into an arena to start holding rallies again. Is that right? And rally tickets being sold or reserved? Yeah, and handed out. And, you know, the president yesterday said that, uh, you know, a million requests had come in for uh, uh, access into this event in Tulsa. You know, a million is several times more the population of Tulsa. So we've got to take those numbers with a bit of a grain of salt or two. Mm -hmm. uh, but there have been conversations that have sparked off over the last 24 hours about whether or not some of the events for this might actually be held outside uh, to try and ensure that there would be some level of safety for the people that were attending that are going 
going to be attending this rally this week. We now know that that's not going to happen. The president is going to have these people inside. Uh, you know, it, it's it's unclear whether there's going to be, you know, seats in between each person when oftentimes it's a standing room only event. Uh, but there is a high risk and a high fear from Tulsa's uh, health department that this is going to cause an increase in their numbers two weeks from now. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, and uh, we continue checking in with Chikini, our Global News Washington correspondent. And uh, Reggie, there's a, an, an historic vote coming down in D.C. Can you tell us about the, the wish, the want for statehood? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a big moment for uh, for residents of Washington, D.C., especially uh, a lot of people don't realize it. But Washington, D.C. is not a state. It's simply just a, a federal district in the United States that happens to be the home to seven and a little bit hundred thousand people. Uh, and it doesn't get any representation in the Senate. It only has kind of a, a congressperson who just does things at large, which is why license plates in D.C. say taxation without representation. Uh, and there's a fight uh, as to whether or not this should actually become a state. Republicans don't want it to because it's overwhelmingly Democratic here and it would provide more Democrats uh, in the U.S. Congress. But for the first time in Washington history, next week, the House is going to vote on Washington, D.C. becoming a state, and it has overwhelming support. So it will likely pass the House next week. It will likely fail in the Senate and definitely would fail if it reached the president's desk. But for the first time in American history, Washington, D.C. has a chance, even though a slim chance, of actually becoming the 51st state. So once it makes it through the House and goes to the Senate is denied, or if it made it through the Senate and got to the president, it was totally vetoed. Could it be brought back again sooner? Is this one step closer or does this set it back? No, this has been uh, this is there's been an attempt to get a vote on this numerous times. It actually okay. went to the House for a vote uh, in the 1990s, and it was actually overturned by a then Democratic held Senate. Uh, but this is something that could happen again. You know, after this coming election, if there happens to be kind of a blue flip in Washington and we see the Democrats take control of the Senate, we see a Democrat in the White House. There is an opportunity here for uh, this to move through and, and, and actually pass. You know, there are additional steps that would have to go along the way because it would require a change to the Constitution. But this is something that D.C. residents really have been looking for because at the end of the day, there is a mayor here and there is a local council, but they are governed by Congress and at the and Congress can actually overturn any rule uh, that local government makes in D.C. So it makes it really hmm. difficult to carry out day-to-day -day life in Washington. Wow, to get anything done. Interesting. Can you debunk a couple things for me while we have you on the line here, Reggie? Um, seeing, I've had a couple people actually just while speaking with you send me DMs by Twitter uh, with that that screen cap or screen grab, I guess, of uh, the Craigslist ad that's con gone rather viral, um, looking for actors, 500 actors to hold up pro-Trump signs. I went to Snopes and checked it out and it says unproven. Have you seen this making rounds there? I mean, I've seen a couple of people tweet about this Craigslist uh, uh, posting looking for excited and enthusiastic minority actors and actresses. Uh, to hold signs at an event in Tulsa. I can't uh, confirm or deny whether or not any of that is actually true. It could simply just be, uh, you know, something to try and, and make waves uh, on, on, on the internet. But, you know, th mm -hmm. these are simply things that happen when the president holds an event somewhere. 
See, and and going through it and doing our due diligence as we do, and I and I love that you your answer is I don't know because people are trying to make things noisy on the internet, and this is one of those things that people grab onto and say, "See, aha, this is what's happening." It's like, whoa, whoa, hold your horses, check your sources, and you go through. And I love Snopes.com as a resource because it will tell you unproven, or if it's confirmed, it'll say true, and if it's proven false, it is announced as false. But this sort of post has shown up in one form or another ever since Trump came into office, July 2016, October 2018, August 2017. Like There's a list of these sorts of posts that have made the attempt to, to sort of disrupt the news cycle. Yeah. And I mean, look, anytime there is some kind of a protest taking place around the country, whether or not it's at a Trump rally or as we even saw, uh, you know, with the protests that have been taking place over the last three weeks, the president will talk about paid professional protesters that are usually what he sees as being hired back then by the Hillary Clinton campaign or being hired by the Joe Biden campaign. And 99.9% of the time, if not 100% of the time, this is simply just the president trying to fight back against a group that is fighting back against the president. Uh, and instead of, you know, taking any kind of responsibility by saying maybe some of the things that I did uh, in my administration are are bothersome to people, uh, he just makes these points of saying people are, you know, being paid to come out and protest. And that's that's simply usually not what the case is with this one, with this Tulsa one. You know, I, I can't verify any of that, but it just this, this kind of plays into the president's uh, uh, phrasing when it comes to yeah. protesters. It, it seems rather cyclical. For some reason, it just it feels that way. Let's talk a little bit about Jacksonville and the um, Republican National Convention going to Jacksonville, Florida, Florida, as you mentioned prior to the break, uh, the, the spiking COVID-19 numbers and the Jacksonville mayor, Lenny Curry, saying we're filling up the arena. Filling up the arena and excited about that. I mean, between his con press conference and the uh, the governor's press conference, Ron DeSantis, both of them are acting as this. You know, this is this is the best thing that could have ever happened to the state, despite the fact that there is an incredible health risk. And the reason that it's happening in Florida is because the Democratic governor of North Carolina said that it was simply too much of a risk to put all of these people inside of uh, of a venue, which led to a back and forth fight between uh, the president. Now, with this convention being pulled out and put into Florida. It's left uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, realistically to, to fight all these millions in contract liabilities uh, that the president is out of there. Uh, you know, we're still two months away ish from this convention. And if Florida's numbers really go up from where they are right now, this could pose a serious risk and a serious threat, not only to everybody that's uh, kind of getting ready for this party, but also for the president himself when he's going to be standing in a room with 20 some odd thousand people. Uh, the president is of an advanced age and he mm -hmm. is one of the people that are considered at risk if you are in uh, a high contact setting. This is something else. It's so out there. Um, this might be yesterday's news, but it's big enough and we didn't have a uh, check-in in with Chikini yesterday. So I want to talk about this today. The Supreme Court ruling, the overwhelming ruling uh, for LGBTQ2 plus uh, civil rights being actual civil rights, just plain and simple. Did this the monumentous ruling uh, come as a surprise or was it received beautifully as it was here north of the border uh, in the United States? What's the reaction to it? I mean, look, it was received uh, uh, beautifully by people who were pushing for civil rights laws to be uh, passed across the board so that every person is protected, no matter who they are, no matter who they love, and no matter what they identify as in this country. Uh, it was widely uh, accepted by most people. Uh, some people in 
inside the White House were a little put off at one of the president's uh, personal choices and nominees for Supreme Court uh, going against what the administration's actions have been over the last three years, up to and including a recent move that was uh, that's essentially allowing discrimination against uh, people who identify uh, as LGBTQ uh, when it comes to health care. But m- really what's going on here is we, we are seeing that religious conservatives and people on the far right are really rattled by this right now. And this could have an effect on the president's electability later on this year because they'll see this as an affront to them. Uh, so the president may have found himself in hot water based on one of his own uh, Supreme Court justices uh, who realistically decided that everybody should be treated equally under the law did the right thing by the majority by the the mass majority of the people of the united states but fascinating when so much fear has surrounded how the supreme court would evolve and change and and lean further and further to uh, a right wing agenda and clearly with yesterday's ruling not such a worry at this point yeah. And I mean, look, this could have long lasting effects going down the road now. You know, I just did a story over the weekend about there's going to be a Supreme Court battle against a Catholic adoption agency who sued the city of Philadelphia because they lost their contract when the city said, if you're not going to adopt your children out to uh, same sex couples, we're going to take your contract away because you're taxpayer funded. Uh, this could have an impact on that now by the Supreme Court saying, look, if everybody's being treated as equal, you cannot judge against somebody when uh, you're trying to adopt out children from uh, from the services and into uh, a family. So there are long lasting impacts with this. You know, it is also important to remember here, the Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts also went along with this ruling. And five years ago, he went against the ruling for same sex marriage fascinating reggie when do we get to see that story you're working on that sounds excellent it just ran over the weekend the article is up uh, at globalnews.ca uh and it's something that is likely going to take place uh within the next couple of months so this is going to be one of those stories to watch to see if uh, if precedent is going to have been set with the way that people are now being treated equal under the law with the law of the land all right i missed it on the weekend i'm going to globalnews.ca to check out reggie Cicchini's story always a pleasure to check in with you reggie thank you for uh, giving us the coles notes on a very busy time jody vance in for jill bennett and as if life isn't stressful enough some condo owners in our province are stuck in limbo when it comes to strata insurance and according to the bc financial services authority the regulator responsible uh, for safeguarding confidence and stability in bc is out with their first data-driven report on this nightmare for condo owners so let's get the facts and try and unpack it in the least possible complicated form This report is a heady one. What are the next steps? Well, let's ask Frank Chong, the Vice President, Deputy Superintendent Regulations for BC Financial Services, joins us on the line. Mr. Chong, thank you for doing this. Hi, good afternoon. This is certainly a conversation that we have talked about in great length here on CKNW, trying to figure out this crisis for condo owners, the strata insurance crisis that is happening. Some, as Mike Smith was uh, talking about on his show earlier, some getting uh, 300% increases in their premiums. And now the BC Financial Services Authority has come out with this data-driven um, uh, look into what's causing this. So can you give us a, a bit of an overview of what you found? Sure. So uh, back in February, we launched an in-depth data collection from insurance brokers and from insurance companies. And since that time, we've been working uh, to to process this information, and we've been able to gather this information and prepare it and present it in our interim findings uh, back to the Minister of Finance and Minister of Housing. 
Uh, what we found were three key areas. First is that average strata insurance premiums increased by about 40% for the province and 50% for the metro Vancouver region based on the de- data that we collected back in February 2020. Uh, we also found that the deductibles also increased up to double and triple digits. Um, wow. Most importantly, w- one of the things that we've also identified is that there is no immediate sign of price relief. Prices have not yet stabilized and that further pressures are expected to continue over the midterm. Uh, we've concluded that the current state of the strata insurance market is is unhealthy. So th- how do we dig ourselves out of this issue? What do we need to find? Is it the gaps that, because in, in reading your report, finding that one of the biggest culprits are the new buildings, the less than five-year-old buildings and sort of the gaps in the home warranty. So so the claims are, instead of being covered by the, the homeowner, are falling to the strata, which is rendering the, the, the strata all but bankrupt. And then in, insurance on top of that being difficult to cover, especially with the, the size and cost associated with these new builds. Is it, is it part environment and part a, a loophole situation that we're seeing here? Sure, yeah. Maybe perhaps what I could do is describe a little bit about the underlying causes. And, and, and I think for your listeners, what's important here is that this is a very complex matter. The first element is that the minor claims have really made strata insurance unprofitable for the private insurance sector. There's evidence that points to insurance claims from the newer builds. Uh, and as well as the older uh, buildings with the lack of maintenance. Uh, And so there's a big uh, uh, increase in the frequency of these minor claims, mostly water-related claims, and it's really made this particular product line uh, unprofitable. The second component is really uh, the fundamentals of supply, and really what's driving that is really earthquake risk exposure as well as uh, the huge demand due to the new buildings, and which is really uh, really putting a lot of pressure on insurance companies uh, in being able to meet this demand moving forward here. And then third one is what we refer to as um, best terms pricing. And and there is a, a certain pricing method out there that can lead to higher premiums for uh, certain properties. And that's something what, that we want to certainly explore further with the industry. Can you give us a, an example of, what, of how best terms pricing works with regard to insurance companies? Yeah, sure. So um, no one insurance company can really uh, insure a significant um, uh, bill, a condo complex. And so what happens is that there might be multiple insurance companies that are bidding on that same coverage uh, for that same property. And so the premium paid by that strata is really determined by the higher bids, even if the average bids are considerably uh, less. And so the final terms is really available within that group of insurers that are bidding. What we know about this particular method is that it ensures that there are same terms that apply to all involved in the contract. But when you have many insurers um, involved in the contract, you need to be able to standardize the terms. What's interesting about this is that besides standardizing terms, it also standardizes the prices. So in a healthy market, it can actually... Uh, bring the prices downward. But in an unhealthy market, it can actually lead to increasing impact on, on the price. And that's really causing us uh, a bit of pause. And we, we'd want to have further conversations with the industry uh, because in some cases and some of the evidence that we have uh, is causing some premiums to increase. Um, and it is important to recognize that this is not the sole cause for the widespread increases, but it is one factor uh, in, in the increases. 
Fascinating to have actually the data-driven research done here. We're with Frank Chong, who's the Vice President, Deputy Superintendent Regulation for BC Financial Services Authority. And uh, it... Obviously, ours is the unhealthy market uh, on so many levels, as you say, and there's no quick fix to this. But how do we start moving towards or what what recommendations come into play for the incredibly overwhelmed and frustrated condo owner whose strata cannot be insured? I mean, we, we talk about it quite often here on the program. You, you can't get have get a mortgage without having insurance like there. It, it's, it's not an optional thing to have so when you when you can't get it or you you see your premiums at 300 percent if there's no quick fix where's the relief here yeah so certainly at bc i have to say we recognize the financial pressure this is having on households Mm -hmm. and there's a very practical um, uh, impact to many throughout this province who own uh, stratas or even our, our renters as well too. And so what we want to do is we need to be able to better understand this very complex issue um, and recognizing that every market participant, whether or not you're an insurer, you're a broker, strata property manager, strata owner, uh, and so forth, uh, you will have some sort of role. And so our uh, objective is to release this interim findings uh, to government and to the public. Uh, we intend to meet with stakeholders over the next couple of months and to gain their uh, input on our interim findings and then present back our final report in the fall. We believe that this is an important aspect to understanding the full scope of this very complex issue and that mm-hmm. uh, that not only uh, will it be government but also others in the industry will have a role to play to be able to bring this market back into a healthy state. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we need to fully understand what the problem is before we can even go about fixing it. Absolutely. We have to get the full picture, get it uh, to an accurate um, assessment of what this uh, issue uh, looks like, uh, and that ensure that we have the right people uh, to be able to contribute to the, the, the fix. And the BC FSA is clearly on this program. Thank you so much for taking some time to explain, as mentioned, a very complex and many moving parts issue here in uh, Metro Vancouver specifically. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you. That's Frank Chong, the, the VP of Deputy uh, or Deputy Superintendent of Regulation, BC FSA. Uh, coming up on the other side of a quick pause here. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum held a council meeting last evening where he began to address the 40 plus million dollar pandemic balloon deficit uh, that that city faces. Our Janet Brown has been reporting on this, um, giving us scoops. And yesterday uh, she brought news that, that the cuts were coming to community centers and pools and parks and green spaces. Nowhere was there mention of pressing pause on the biggest expense that uh, policing transition, the switch from the RCMP to a municipal police force in Surrey. And and there was another hit last night, the the Surrey City Development Corporation, the the concept that came from former Mayor Diane Watts, part of the strategy strategy that is to develop a real downtown in Surrey. Uh, Diane Watts joins us on the line. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Jody. What was your reaction when you heard the news? 
Well, you know, he's been uh, uh, saying this for quite some time now. I think in every election that he's run in, he has mentioned that he was going to do away with the Surrey City Development Corporation. And I think there really has to be a wholesome understanding as to what exactly the Surrey Development Corporation is, because uh, every major city across this country has a development corporation, and it's taking public assets, assets that are owned by the residents of the city and capitalizing on them. So that's exactly what we did. And we set that up in 2007 because, uh, as you as you know, in 2008, there was the financial collapse. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to make sure we weren't raising taxes, but we still had to move the city forward. So capitalizing on those assets, lower taxes, and it was dedicated to build rec centers, libraries, arenas, social housing, arts and culture, uh, all of those, all of those things. And, you know, when we were up and running, it was a revenue stream, about $10 million into the city. So it, it was quite significant. As a Delta girl, I can tell you, and spending a, a, a lot of time in the city of Surrey and sort of watching it grow, it, it always has had sort of well, where are we meeting? Are we meeting over here or over there? Or is there this or is that? There's not that sort of Georgia and Granville feeling, right? There's that that right. downtown vibe where you, you're going to go to the art gallery, you're going to walk down the way and maybe go to the, the movies or, or, or the restaurants with all the patios lined up, the, that sort of downtown feeling. And I remember when first hearing about um, this Surrey City Development Corporation, I thought, what a great idea, because that is the one piece watching Surrey grow from its infancy, really, and and being one of the fastest growing areas in British Columbia, if not the fastest growing, uh, a vital piece of of the puzzle, even though it is as, as expensive as you say. Well, exactly. And it was really important to, you know, as a second metropolitan core of, of, of the region, it's very important to have that downtown core built out. So with the development corporation, I mean, they did a joint venture with one of the hotels, with a brew pub, uh, you know, the, the library, I think, was part of that. There was a number of other, uh, other um, public facilities that were a part of that because at the end of the day, you don't want to raise taxes so the residents and the businesses pay for that kind of infrastructure. You need to come up with other solutions. So when you have uh, that land that is owned by the city, thus the residents, you want to make sure that there's a good return on that investment. And so that's, that's exactly what we did. And we modeled it after, after some of the major cities, uh, their models uh, that were uh, in place right across the country. So it worked very well. And I know that uh, it was, uh, you know, with, among some developers, they weren't, they weren't happy with that. But, you know, in the same context, it was really important when you're building a city to really look 10, 20, 30 years down the road uh, and continue with that uh, with that vision and make sure that the community is on board, which they were. Right. And hearing the reaction to the idea of this being one of the cuts has been uh, loud, to say the least. Oh, for sure. Because everybody knew, because there was openness and transparency, everybody knew why it was being set up. And uh, when you have people running in an election, and, and like I said, I mean, prior to, 
to this election. Uh, the current mayor has, has stated numerous occasions that he's going to do away with it. So I think COVID is just a, uh, a catalyst to say, okay, we can get this done and then sell off the, the, the assets, which I really hope that there's enough noise that that's not going to happen because once those assets are sold, you cannot get them back. And it's, it's short-sighted for the moment to to um, backfill the budget, but certainly it's not forward-thinking or forward-looking. And really backfilling the budget while spending out the other side at a, a, a very high rate based on pre-COVID planning. Well, for sure. And, you know, you really have to look at the, the whole entire budget and mm-hmm. look at what do we need to do. And I think one of the things that is really glaring to many of the residents, and you've, you've seen this uh, over and over for months and months and months now, is around the police transition uh, costs, because there, there is no cost that has been available or the costing to the general public. And this certainly has been a source of uh, aggravation, I know, for, for many of the residents. And when we hear the mayor say, well, at least 60% of the RCMP are going to come over to, to the Surrey Police Department, and yet we're going to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to get them over there, I'm not sure what the end benefit is going to be when you already have them in place and you're not putting that kind of money out. So I think there, there really has to be some opportunity here to you know, hopefully engage the general public in this discussion. And when the general public wants to be engaged in this discussion, what's your advice to them? I think they just want the information. First and foremost, I mean, at the end of the day, whether they go with their own city force or they don't, that's, that's the determination down the road. What you need to do is identify, first and foremost, what it is you're trying to fix. Secondly, mm-hmm. what's the business plan? What are you going to get with the Surrey Department that you're not getting with the RCMP? What are the pros and what are the cons? If you're just changing the badges on the RCMP officers to the city police force, they're the same individuals that are policing the city right now. So yeah, the cost worth you, the end and the, the end result. Exactly. So yeah. the, the general public has not been brought along in the process. And that's where some critical thinking and um, and and community engagement really needs to take place. We're seeing blue sky, but it has been so soggy for so long. We've been hearing news reports of saturation points in the interior of BC, how there's been so much rain. Uh, it's concerning. Well, what does that mean for wildfire season? We've all experienced smogus now all too often in British Columbia and and wanting to protect our beautiful province from wildfires and certainly those caused human caused. I wanted to get the intel on whether or not all of the rain we've been getting these last few weeks and and January, as we've started calling it, uh, if, if that rainfall is going to protect us at all as we get deeper into wildfire season. So joining us on the line now is Information Officer for the Provincial Wildfire Coordination Centre. Sarah Hall is joining us. Thanks for doing this, Sarah. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. So pardon my layman's terms questions here. I'm certainly no expert on wildfires and rainfall, but many of us have been sort of sitting around and talking and saying, you know, we'll take this rain 
all day, every day, if it means we can protect our beautiful province from the devastation of wildfires that we've seen in recent years. Um, can you educate us a bit on uh, whether or not the rain will have any impact moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. And I can't help to agree with your statement. It is lovely to protect our beautiful province that we all live in here. Um, but yeah, looking into June, it is very evident we are experiencing cool and wet weather conditions across the province. And this periodic rain has moderated fire conditions quite substantially. Uh, we okay. do have a low fire danger rating across the province here as well. However, we have seen some more sort of thunder and lightning, uh, thunderstorm activity, even in the lower mainland, which is rather unusual, but certainly in the interior. Um, we're seeing more of that when we're watching our uh, global news morning and we see those lightning strikes on the radar. Uh, are those mm-hmm. concerning even with the wetter weather or are, do the conditions need to be much drier in order for those to be a big concern? Um, So it's looking like we can expect normal to cooler and wet weather patterns into June. Um, But BC may continue to experience wildfires in valley bottoms and in lighter fuel areas uh, with grasses or particularly during windy conditions in areas with low humidity or after several days of drying. As well as with the snow melting, um, fires will begin to occur at higher elevations. But this June rainfall has really helped and... um, it will continue to kind of keep our province wet and a little bit more protected. But we shouldn't be complacent as we all keep our fingers crossed that we're going to open up to phase three of this COVID-19 pandemic and be able to move around our province. People that would otherwise probably travel across Canada or internationally, maybe staying local. We do need to be diligent because mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, Sarah, and you'd certainly know better than I, so many of the wildfires that we have seen have been human-caused and could be preventable, right? Yeah, absolutely. All fires can be preventable, especially when we're looking at campfires. And just I'd like to remind the public that we do have an open um, burning prohibition in place provincially wide. Uh, So that's Category 2 and 3 fires. Um, That does exclude campfires. They are allowed, but it is very important to check with your local jurisdiction uh, before heading out for the weekend or having fun with your friends. And if you are to have a campfire, to make sure that is um, meeting the regulations, so 0.5 meters in height, 0.5 meters in length, um, always making sure you have at least eight liters of water nearby and a hand tool to make sure it's properly extinguished. Um, And just being responsible as we're um, heading out into nature and um, out into the public a little bit more often now. And people trying to get out and go camping and maybe some are novices and don't necessarily understand or were unaware of those tips that you just gave. When you say 0.5 in height and 0.5 in width, are you talking about that's the maximum size that you should have? Absolutely. So give give us some context for that because I mean oh, we've sorry, all been at a bonfire, um, right? We've all we've all been yeah. a part of. Hey, there! Let's put another log on the fire. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. It can get out of hand really, really quickly. So can you give some parameters to that? Absolutely. So just make sure it's 0.5 meters, um, and it has to have a guard around, uh, just so that it doesn't get out of hand. Um, category two and three fires are a lot bigger, um, mostly. People try to burn like brush if they have larger properties, but we want to keep these fires small 
um, especially with campfires. Um, the public are having campfires, so we just want to make sure that they're protected with a guard around them and um, they're easily extinguished before you leave the premises. Right. So a guard could be a, a row of stones in a circle that contains the wood and the ash in the center, right? And maybe dig a little bit of a perimeter to make sure there's no flammables that are nearby where it could race out of control quickly. Is that is that a guard? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definition? You got it. Okay, I'm bringing in my brownies and girl guides into this one. So yeah, we need to go. go. We need to be aware when we're going out into our beautiful province and aren't we lucky that the the conditions are are good? for having mm. a small campfire, but we just need to be mindful. And sometimes people think, oh, I'll just cover it up with some with some dirt. It'll be fine. You have to fully extinguish your small, even your small campfire before leaving yeah, it unattended. Absolutely. And these open burning prohibitions, um, they're in place to reduce the demands on firefighting resources and, of course, to help protect the health and safety of the public as well as the BC Wildfire Service staff. Um, And they're also going to help reduce the impact of wildfire smoke um, on air quality and public health during this COVID-19 pandemic. So we just really ask the public to please follow these regulations and, of course, check with your local jurisdiction and always call us if you, you know, if you have um, an inquiry. Uh, We receive lots of media calls and we always love answering um, calls just for people wanting to make sure if this is okay, because it really shows that those people care. And that is the Provincial Wildfire Coordination Centre. Thanks so much for doing this, Sarah. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. And if I could just remind the public, um, if you see any suspicious activity or you do spot a wildfire, please report it and call 1-800-663-5555 or star 555. Star 555. I've actually dialed that number before and I felt (laughs) felt nervous about doing it. And then I felt great when I found out that it was a fire that was caught early. So let's all be a part of fire prevention.